this is Tal Raviv and welcome to Interventional Mindset. I'm here with Carolina Roca, cataract, cornea, refractive surgeon, and a PhD in optics. Uh, she has a distinguished academic career as a super mom with two young children. And today we're going to talk about all things related to IOLs, spherical aberration, EDOF, and the trade-off between contrast, sensitivity, and depth of focus. And there's no one that knows more about that than Carolini. So welcome, Caroline. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations to you and Gary and Priya. You know, I love the website and I actually tell our fellows and residents to check the website because it, it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great having you. There's no one more interventional than you and also the mindset uh, that you have and that's been changing. It's certainly I've, ch I've had a change in mindset about spherical collaboration over the last 10 years. I'd love to get your input. We'll get into that. Let's start by telling me a little bit about your practice. Yeah, so I'm a cornea uh, cataract refractive here at the Medical University of South Carolina. And uh, it's my, I, I love my practice because I have a really great balance. You know, we see premium patients, LASIK refractive patients, and a lot of complex cases that we end up doing and transplants. So it's a really a great balance. You know, of course I'm in academics, so I love it. And you know, I have the opportunity to work with fellows and residents. I think it's it's great. So do you do you guys have a fellowship there? Is that where you train or residents or all, all the above? Yes, yeah, so we have a residence and uh, we have a clinical fellow, uh, you know, through the San Francisco match and usually one international fellow for research. That's fantastic. And I want to talk a little bit in this podcast. What interests me is, you know, your academic interests. And I didn't realize how, how far back they go. But, you know, what, tell us a little bit about your PhD. I don't know if many people know that you have a PhD, but tell us a little bit about that and what that was all about. And that's fascinating. And how this relates to your career, too. Yeah, so I actually did two residency, right? And after my first residency in Brazil, and Brazil is a combined fellowship fellowship PhD program. And, uh, and then it's when I really wanted, you know, I started looking into optics, you know, and my PhD was in Wavefront and IOLs at that time. So this was back in 2007 when I was in Sao Paulo. And, but I had an opportunity to spend some time in France, you know, in the lab bench optics, that was a really fantastic experience. And that helps us now, you know, with all the premium lenses. And, you know, I always say that it's uh, the science and the art of matching, you know, that lens to the patients, what the patients are looking for and really matching that perfect lens. We always want to make sure our patients are happy, right? That's what's important. Well. That's, uh, that's amazing. You know, you've also, I, I, you know, we're part of a group called Cedars Aspens and recently your landmark paper, you know, that you just published and congratulations on that in August in the AJO. We're going to get into that a little bit. That is all about spherical operations and, you know, what we can do with lenses. But I want to step back a little bit to historically to, you know, my recollection, you know, I started out uh, I'm a little older and 20 years ago, and we started out with, we didn't know anything about these spherical lenses. We had all spherical IOLs and we thought everything was great. And then around 15 years ago, the concept, the first few aspheric lenses came out and they promised, you know, better vision. And some of them even had, a, you know, an indication on the box that this is better night vision. You can break at 20 feet sooner with this, et cetera, et cetera. And so most of us, without even thinking, you know, adopted those lenses and they became the de facto norm. Uh, we didn't think much about 
anything else, the consequences back then. I just thought this is better in all respects. So we just converted everyone to that. What's your, you know, first of all, what are the benefits to these lenses? And was that the right thing to do? I mean, should we, are these, the, you know, tell us about the history a little bit about what happened during that time and, and the different types of aspheric lenses we have. Good. And I want to start because there's a really nice paper that was published in 1983, Nakamura. And we, at that time, we only had spherical lenses, right? And then um, uh, the authors, they reported this pseudo accommodation in patients with spherical lenses. So that was very interesting. He didn't know, he couldn't explain why. But, you know, and if you talk to older ophthalmologists, you know that sometimes patients with monofocal lenses, they can see distance, sometimes 20, 20, 20, 25, and they can read close up, right? So when I was in Brazil during my PhD, you know, I did a study, you know, I uh, want to acknowledge my mentors, Wallace Ramon and Nusa, but we had a group of patients that had a spherical lens in one eye and one of the new lenses, the spherical lens in the contralateral eye. So I think the idea, you know, we know that the cornea has positive spherical aberration for a six millimeter pupil. So this lens is you correcting and compensating for a spherical aberration. No question when you cancel out, if you have a perfect optic system, the quality, the MPF, all the um, metrics, you know, for contrast sensitivity is definitely much, much better. But then we've learned that there's a sweet spot, you know, where you can use that sphere corroboration to enhance the depth of focus. I think that's a great point. You know, I didn't realize any of this, but I know over the last, I, I remember some of the most miserable patients are ones that I put in a, an aspheric toric lens and, you know, maybe they were Plano to begin with, but I made them Plano in a super Plano way. They had incredible distance vision. And some of them really said, I can't see my counter doctor. I can't see this, not always, but occasionally. And I was perplexed. Others of course saw more, but I did recall that I started noticing maybe in the late, uh, you know, uh, aughts that, you know, my patients, I used to have patients that read without glasses when back in the days when I was spherical lenses, it was like a third of the patients. And you're right, I never knew why. We, we I thought it was a little astigmatism and pupil and we'll get into that. You, you, you studied this. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, what we were doing with this spherical aberration, ne these negative spherical aberration lenses were great contrast, great MTF, but we were taking away some depth of focus from our patients. And is that, and you know, that's become more and more obvious to us now because now we're swung over to refractive cataract surgery that didn't exist maybe 15 years ago, but now it is front and foremost. And that's something that it's so on my mind, uh, giving patients functional, intermediate and near vision. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, you know, up until 10 years, even some, even to today, there are doctors that match, as you said, they look at the sphere collaboration on the wavefront or topography, and they match, you know, one of the two or even the three types of IOLs, depending on that. Is that still something that should be done or should we be incorporating other factors when we match sphere collaboration? That is a fantastic question. And I actually had that question in mind when I design, you know, a study that we just published in the AJO, I actually was part of my uh, AOS, the American Ophthalmological Society thesis. But I wanted to answer that question, you know, um, what are the patients that can definitely benefit from just the monofocal lens? Um, another thing that you mentioned, you know, that unhappy monofocal patient, especially those low myopes, minus three, need to be very careful and explain because they're not going to be happy 
with a really perfect distance vision. They can't see not even the plate, what they're eating, right? And those are, um, need to be careful. And I like to teach our residents, you know, a lot of options, extended range of vision. But, you know, to answer that question, you know, we need to go back a little bit and understand what are all the factors that can um, help us in terms of pseudo-accommodation? What, what is pseudo-accommodation? Is again, this extended that focus that um, it's independent of the ciliary muscle contraction, right? Of course, we're talking high-order aberrations is one. We mentioned sphere aberration, but the pinhole is another one, right? We know that the pinhole optics can extend uh, the depth of focus in uh, patients with uh, X, Y, and Z pupil. We're learning a lot about the pupil now uh, with some eye drops coming up for, for presbyopia, right? So we've mm -hmm. learned not a, a perfect number, but like a range, uh, like a, a change in 50 to 40% from the natural people can definitely extend the depth of focus without compromising the distance. Um, residual astigmatism, it's another one. Corneal sphericity, just the shape of the cornea. So it's not only one factor. So, but then this is exactly what we did for this study. So we uh, looked at patients' age, gender, uh, high order aberrations from the pentacamp, pupil size, corneal history, all the factors. So we had basically two main groups, you know, one group uh, of normal corneas and a very special group, patients that had hyperopic LASIK. Because remember, when someone has hyperopic LASIK, now you have this hyperpolate cornea or a cornea with negative sphere preparation. And those patients, they have a lot of negative sphere preparation, right, after hyperopic LASIK. So, and then we implanted uh, IOLs with negative sphere preparation in just an aberration free lens. Okay? So, and uh, we looked at all the different factors. So it was very interesting because um, definitely the pinhole, the pupil size, the corneal spherical aberration, and asphericity, um, you know, in the, that very first analysis, everything plays a role, you know, in terms of achieving in our study was a distance corrected near vision of J3 or better. Okay. So you basically, just to recap for the audience here, this was, it was kind of a two-pronged two study. Uh, you looked at eyes uh, that were normal, normal corneas that you presume have an average of positive spherical aberration and in their corneas. And some got a negative spherical aberration lens and others got a zero aberration. You compared those two and you try to see how can we predict who got this distance corrected J3, such an important factor for all of us when we're talking to patients. Uh, and then we'll get into the hyperopic LASIK group, which has also got the zero aberration for you, and you compare those. So I would think all those things are important. You know, we all want to know. We want to be able to do a test on someone and measure 17 things and then know, okay, I can guarantee them 75% chance you'll see J3. I don't know. But what, what did you guys find? Well, were all these things critical or, or were you surprised that some weren't as critical as we thought they would be? Exactly, exactly. So we basically found that the lens type, you know, using an aberration free was a factor um, uh, about a line better than the negative sphere aberration lens. Um, and uh, 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 I think for this group was mostly the IOL type, right? And mostly because, you know, that the aberration free lens preserves the corneal sphere aberration. 
Now you measured these eyes in many ways. I looked at your paper and I was, I saw words in there that, you know, I thought I'd do a little bit of optics, but you had unusual, you know, I'll just quote for the reader, a visual strail optical transfer function for far and near. There's the EROF, the effective range of focus, sphere shift. Do, do, do we refractive surgeons, you know, need to know those, you know, more importantly, did those objectively measured uh, measurements, did they help predict anything or really it was just the lens we put in was more predictive than all these other ones? Yeah, so so how we uh, just should um, assess the outcomes, we did two things, right? So clinically, you correct for distance. If someone has residual myopia, residual astigmatism, we want to make sure you're correcting for distance before performing those DOF curves or measuring for intermediate and near vision. So those are this is our subjective measurement. And then we use ray tracing with eye trace to measure all the metrics that you mentioned, that you, you just um, mentioned, right? So the effective range of focus, uh, the sphere shift that is this peak to peak, and the VSOTF, this fancy name, is just a metric of contrast. Okay. Okay. So just we're not being sure we had an objective measurement. And that was interesting because we found that correlation, you know, in all the different groups, right? So it's just a way that post-op you can, if you do the eye trace, you kind of can tell the patients that were able to, you know, that had a better extended depth of focus, basically. You're doing the, the eye trace before or after or, or both? Which one is more? That's post-op. Okay. That's post-op. Pre-op, it helps. Because remember, the eye trace, it has topography and then the wavefront, and you kind of can look at the corneal aberrations. That's your way of figuring out the spherical aberration and the coma, the trefoil, those things, the eye trace? Okay. So, you know, afterwards, of course, you can measure the spherical aberration of the whole eye with the eye trace. And, you're, and you know, I would presume it'd be more positive with the negative, I'm sorry, with the zero-ray sphericity lens, because you just have the corneal power. And that, that was a really critical factor in giving us the range. So... What about in the hyperopic LASIK group? This is a group that, you know, I've looked at these patients. I do a lot of post-LASIK eyes. And of course, the post-myopic LASIK, they have more spherical aberration, and some usually, than the average eye. And a negative spherical aberration, I will always made sense to me because the quality of the vision is better and it works. And then we always thought, what do we do with these hyperopic? Do we do a spherical lens? Do we do an aspheric lens? You know, do we do, do, we do negative spherical? You know, I've used them all, actually. And I guess my question to you is, well, first tell us what you found in this study comparing the, you compared the zero sphericity eye well and normalized to post hyperopic LASIK eyes and who saw better from near? Great. So um, again, those are very special group of patients, right? They have negative spherical aberration, but sometimes the ablation is a little decentered. So you're not only seeing SA spherical aberration, but coma, correct? Yes, right? Sure. So that's why for this group, we only use the uh, aberration freelance. Okay. It's a great thought if you think, okay, those patients that have negative spherical aberration, you can maybe use just a regular old lens with positive spherical aberration. But just because that uh, tolerance to decentration, that's why we decided, and that actually is my lens of choice, an aberration freelance for this uh, patient population. That was interesting. If you look at the paper, the DOF curves, they were, it was, we saw a huge difference. You know, that group had you know, more than one to two diopters of extended depth of focus. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Um, I've actually, in, you know, going back, I'm thinking 10 years ago when I wasn't as aware about this and I, I needed to use a toric lens on a post-hyperopic LASIK. And all we had back then was a negative spheric aberration toric. And I put it in one case, not, the patient didn't see as well. And the other one, the patient saw well and actually could read and do everything. And I presume because I made them really negative spheric aberration. Now, well, I want to get into that with you a little bit here because let, back in your study, you compared the, you know, you just talked about the, in the, in the regular eyes, uh, the negative spheric aberration, the zero spheric aberration. We know that the, there was one line gained in intermediate, best corrected intermediate vision with the uh, zero spheric aberration. Did they lose contrast? Was there any significant loss in best corrected vision or just contrast? What are we giving up to gain that? Is it, is it worthwhile to do it? Exactly. Great question. You know, that fancy metric, the VSOTF, just a metric of contrast when you use using the ray tracing technology was definitely low in that group, right? So trying to preserve that contrast without adding another IOL with a negative sphere corporation. I think that is key. It's important to understand. There was another study, you know, now that I did this, I started thinking, I, I went back in time a little bit and I, I did a PubMed search on, well, if I really want to get, let's say I have a patient, I really want to give them depth of focus and I have to use a monofocal lens. What about if their cornea, what if I used, I mean, if a negative spheric aberration is no good and a, and a zero is good, what about using a positive spheric aberration and really increasing, cranking up that positive spheric aberration lens and so I Googled it, and of course, your other paper came up from 2007, which is incredible. And this looked at, I mean, let's, we can even talk about the lenses here. This is, this is you know, we, you, you compared, um, I don't know if you have that right in front of you, but this was a paper in ophthalmology, I believe. And again, a landmark paper looking at spherical aberrations and depth of focus, comparing, you basically looked at the Acrosoft SA60 and AR40, which uh, compared to the AR40, essentially. And, and you also looked at the SA, the, the, the Acrosoft IQ, which was just uh, coming out. So what did you find there? Do yeah, so the, the IQ is our WF, yes, right? WF. Yes, exactly. With minus 0.24 of negative SA, and then the, the regular spherical lenses. What's interesting, you know, distance, great. They, they sometimes they can see 20-20, but the eye with a positive spherical aberration, the older lenses, these patients, they, they have that extended depth of focus. So the answer was there. <laughs> That's so I, since I looked that up about, I don't know, back in August, I've started using the AR40. You know, I have a monocular patient. They, they, they want to do this. They don't want to get any, they, they, no, you know, they have some drusen. Really, they want, they want as much as they can get, but it's a high risk as far as even putting eat off in them. At least this is pre-IHANS and pre-everything else. And I was putting the AR40 in their eyes and, you know, I was getting some more intermediate, at least so I thought, or the, I guess you can use the SA60AT. Is that true? Can we still use those lenses these days? You can, you can. And the AR40 was interesting because inside the eye, right, the total uh, wavefront, I remember, I think it was a, about a, a positive 0.15 or something like that. It's not super high because remember, so, and I can share that, you know, when I, I was working during my thesis with that adaptive optics, adaptive optics technology that basically you can play with all the aberrations, right? So when we did that, so we we're adding a spare corroboration just to see, okay, how much the patient can tolerate. So one thing I can tell you that, you know, greater than 0.6 of spare corroboration for a six millimeter pupil is when the vision really drops. So let right? me just tell the audience here, because this is an amazing study. This is where you, and you published this, and you looked at the optical aberrations 
uh, there was for collaboration that was you basically had an adaptive optics setup, and you know I'm a lay person when it comes to this, but you could crank up a spherical aberration, you can crank up, you can, you can simulate anything, right? And you basically found that you can't just go forever, right? It was, it was positive 0.6, but also negative 0.06, increase your depth of focus. And we gave up, I presume, some contrast. Is that basically what we found? And if we go above 0.6, then it really doesn't really have additive effects. That, that was correct. You know, I think the max uh, depth of focus up to two diopters, right, was 0.6. You know, but after that, you really start losing, right? There's one study we didn't end up publishing, but the sweet spot was anywhere between 0.3 to 0.4. Interesting. Really keep that distance vision because the goal is to, um, you know, preserve the distance vision, the 2020 line, right? And enhance yes. the depth of focus. Absolutely. So that's why when you have that question, can I do a regular sphere collaboration lens, you know, versus an aspherics, versus an aberration free, it's when, you know, just to answer your question, it's definitely worth it looking at the cornea and the cornea aberrations. For sure. So speaking of all that, that brings us to, you know, the latest uh, hot topic in ophthalmology, in which we have just a, a plethora of these new EDOF, and I call EDOF light, we're about to see, you know, lenses. Can you you know, I've actually specifically, let's talk about these lenses. We don't have to be, we can be very specific. Let's talk about, first of all, the Symphony. That's been around for about three, four years. Carolina, how does that work? I mean, <laughs> what, from what you know as an optics, uh, you know, expert, what is, you know, we know that it preserves contrast and we think that the Echelettes are extending depth of focus, but is there a better way to explain that? And, and you know, how do, it's, it works and, you know, it has some side effects, but, uh, because I'm going to ask you that because I'm also going to ask you how the Vividity works and how the iHands works. And it's proprietary, but how you best understand it. What's your take and how are these different? Yeah, and I'll tell you as much as I know, right? Because some Without breaking any secrets or bonds, yes, this is just general. Uh, of course, you know, it's interesting because Symphony, if you're just using green light, you know, and bench optics, green light, you will see two peaks. That was the big fight at the beginning. Remember, oh, symphony is just a diffractive bifocal. Yes. So I think the key to understand symphony, you know, when we, the older lenses, diffractive bifocals are plus four, right? So there's no power in between. It's really close up in distance. However, at mid-range computer vision, the vision was low. You know, you see, you know, that patients, they lose contrast, they lose vision. However, it was not zero. So that was the aha moment, you know, for the group that, you know, there's something that blends when you are uh, measuring in white light. So then same bench optics, you know, the echelettes are high steps, you know, symphony nine, but when you're using white light and then you can see that extended range. So they're very high to know it kind of flips, you know, remember in optics, the BB rule, the blue bends more. Okay. Chromatic aberration, so yep. you have blue, green, and red. So a symphony will flip that. Got so it. symphony compensates for chromatic aberration right. and gives that extended range, right? Now, contrast, and this is, can be confusing, I think it's important. Quality, it's one thing. High contrast, we know symphony has a really great MTF and quality. This photopsis is completely different. Yes. So because of the rings, can give you the starburst that we know at night. Right. 
Okay, so that brings on the next development. Let's, you know, Vividi. Vividi just came out and, you know, their promise is we got rid of that glare. We figured out a better way to do it. And their studies, their directions for use really show a much lower level of that. Uh, and they, you know, before we get into have you, I don't know if you've started using it or anything, but um, what is wavefront shaping? I mean, whatever, what can you say, you know, not that you, you're an engineer for that lens, but what, how does that work? Yes, you know, there, there's definitely one element there, you know, that is changing the light, right, in that point, changing, I would say, the wavefront. There's one secret element there that you can barely see, but you can see. Right, right, so right in the center there, yep. Exactly. And what we expect in terms of this photopsia is it definitely seems to be much, much better in terms of uh, night vision symptoms, seeing huge halos or spider webs around lights. I think we fixed that problem, right, uh, with that design. So the thing's exciting. Of course, we're not expecting a near vision with that lens, right? right? So looking and at the optics, we know it's distance and intermediate. I feel like there's a third element here that you mentioned before. So, you know, with the monofocal, we have it's contrast and high quality versus depth of focus, you know, with the fear of collaboration. When you start entering these other EDOF lenses, the, the whole glare and halo is almost a triad. You can maximize two of the three. It's hard to get all three of the three. And maybe Vividi, it does have some contrast loss, MTF you know, loss. So maybe that's how they do it. It's, it is just math. We can only divide the pie so often, so much. Is that right? I agree. I agree with you. Right, so it would be nice to have some studies in vivo now, right? So, because we know it's nice, we look at the bench, you know, we right. expect some MTF loss there, I agree with you. But again, it's one thing, you know, it's the contrast. And the second thing is um, uh, night vision symptoms or dysphotopsias. Okay, last couple of questions is um, any, any early treatment, do you use eye hands yet? I'm about to use it this week, but I haven't used it yet. Uh, what's your take on that? Yes, great. We just had our eye hands cases today. Okay, <laughs> so we'll find out tomorrow, it. I guess. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, that so, seems to me that it, everything we're talking about, I feel like, is this just going to give us a little bit like the AR-40 would? You know, I'm just wondering, but obviously not. They, they've, they, there's something in the middle of this lens as well. They've changed that sphere collaboration in a way to keep it the same, supposedly, but it's still a negative sphere collaboration lens from what I understand. But maybe they moved it around the lens. What, what, what can you tell us? And when you look at the design, right? So the, the better, I think the the right way to describe is a high order a sphere. You know, when you're measuring wavefront, we usually in refractive surgery usually we can measure up to the sixth order or eighth order, but usually we can only fix up to the fourth, fifth order, right? So it's fair corroboration that 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 fourth order is fair corroboration. But then you can measure the sixth order essay and the high, high, high orders essay. Right. So, you know, that is the IHANS. You know, it's not that regular fourth order essay. Oh, wow. So the higher, higher orders. So one thing that we want to do, you know, is see if you can use a high resolution wavefront, see if you can pick up some changes or some differences there. Well, I look forward to your future work on this and lighting us. Uh, all refractive cataract surgeons are happy to have all these new technologies and we thank you for taking the time to talk to us, explain this a little bit to us, and it's an exciting time. I look forward to seeing you out in the meetings, hopefully soon in person. And otherwise, thanks so much for joining us here on Interventional Mindset. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And I really miss seeing everyone. Thank you. Take care, Caroline. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.